Hello and welcome everyone. Happy 2021. Thank you for joining us again. You're with Rachel and Matt here again in Melbourne, Australia for a, another New Year edition of When Movies Were Good. Matt, my special guest star as always, how are you? I'm good. A very happy new year to you and our audience. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We do apologize for coming in a week later. We had some technical difficulties and just the general difficulties of dealing with uh, COVID-19. We're now in 2021, so hopefully that'll be dissipating. Thanks, Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we sort of, here in Melbourne, it's sort of two steps forward, one step back, but uh, we're sort of managing to get through, but we just needed to give ourselves a little bit of extra time. And of course, I've got my usual technical difficulties, which I managed to overcome today. So we are here to discuss uh, two really fun, happy movies, two niche movies from the great period of the early 50s. Uh, it's a Gene Kelly double. So we have Singing in the Rain and An American in Paris. American in Paris did come first. That was 1951 and Singing in the Rain was 1952. These films are the epitome of the great song and dance, wouldn't you say, Matt? Yes, they are. It's And it was such a different experience to watch them now, particularly American in Paris, because when I last saw American in Paris, I was a teenager and I was watching a crappy old videotape I'd hired from Blockbuster. Right. But now I was watching a good version on my iPad. Uh, yes. So a world of um, a world of media apart. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, some of these old films you see as children, I, I guess young children today wouldn't be seeing them the way I did and even Matt did when he was a bit younger. There's a bit of an age difference between us, but... It, you know, I remember these films were on, on Saturdays, Saturday evenings with some very famous uh, movie show hosts that we have here in Australia. And, you know, it just fosters memories of childhood. And really, you know, these are the epitome of when movies were good because there's just no way that you can not like these films. They're just so vibrant, colourful, fun. You know, they're a little bit kind of simple in terms of storyline or whatever, but they don't need anything else. I mean, you but know. But their musicals kind of have to be that way because yes. they need time for both the story and the songs. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. So the first film that we'll be discussing, of course... We shouldn't probably go any further without discussing the man himself, Mr. Gene Kelly. So Gene Kelly was born, well, it was Eugene Curran Kelly. He was born August 23, 1912. So he was in the era of the Titanic, you know, if you believe that. Uh, and yeah. he, he was actually quite a long-lived person. He sort of had a bit of a sad demise at the end, having a stroke, etc. But he lived until 1996. So he was really what you called a triple threat, even a quadruple threat. He was He did a bit of everything. He was an actor, dancer, singer, filmmaker, choreographer. And he was, you know, along with Fred Astaire, Donald O'Connor, you know, they were the pioneers of those athletic dancing styles with an array of beautiful women at their side uh, and the happy-go-lucky characters. And he starred in, choreographed and co-directed some of the most well-regarded, two of which we're discussing today, musical films of the 1940s and 50s. And even when they did fall out of fashion into the later 50s, he still remained a force uh, directing and starring in some other dramatic films as well so are you you're a fan of his i am yes like singing in the rain you can't help but uh, smile every time you see it the 
the style, the the numbers are so memorable. Uh, I really love the music of George Gershwin, so it was a real pleasure to watch American in Paris too. All uh, all those songs like uh, It's Wonderful and I Got Rhythm, uh, I find myself whistling them all the time. Yeah, yeah. I, it's amazing just how many of these songs you actually know. You're like, oh, I know that song. Oh, I've heard that song before. And it's lovely to see them all put together um, in this film. So Kelly, you know, originated... Uh, he started taking dance as a child. He seriously started studying it when he was 15 and going older. The family opened up uh, a dance school, which actually bore his name. He was a dance instructor for many years. He got his start on Broadway. Of course, he did work in an early show with Mary Martin. And I didn't want to bring it up. Yes, it's the tradition. I didn't want to bring it up. But everyone, I mean, I do want to bring it up. But I didn't want to bring it up. Who's Larry Hagman's mom? I just had to say that. Of course, there will be another connection as we go as we go forward into this. And, and for um, once, uh, it was a Larry Hagman connection that I knew. Yes, about. yes. Actually, Matt came to me just before we started recording and said, Aha, I know the Larry Hagman connection in these films. And I said, and I confirmed that indeed was the connection. Uh, and, you know, you look at the catalogue of work that Gene Kelly did. And so he got his start on Broadway, worked his way up there, obviously, as an actor, singer and dancer. And then he came over to Hollywood and did Anchors Away. And then he was away and then basically had a, an amazing run of films. He got into directing himself uh, and directed some really um, famous films, you know, Hello, Dolly. Yeah. Um, you know, and some sort of more com comedic things as well. So I just, yeah, I actually we were reading through his sort of, his whole repertoire of work earlier and I was just not aware that he actually had such an abundance of different things. So he really kind of did it all. He had such a long career. So we'll jump into the first film that we were discussing with everyone today and that's the An American in Paris directed by the great Vincent Minnelli. We have the beautiful Leslie Caron in her first major film role after being discovered as a dancer as well. Um, yeah, just such a vibrant and that last dance sequence. Oh my gosh, I was just sitting there going, "Wow, this is a, a long dance sequence." Yeah, I think the only one I've seen longer is the one in the, the end of uh, near the end of Oklahoma. Yeah, um, I'll have to reacquaint myself with that. But that was, uh, you know, there were a few long dance sequences and seeing the rain, but this one was really. But I suppose it was just his. I, am I, I'm guessing this was his ideal concept of what his relationship with Leslie Caron's Lisa, was it? Yeah, uh, with her, uh, the character that she was playing in the film of what their life and their romance could be. And then it's just beautiful how it segues back into her actually really coming up and meeting him at the end of the film. So a little bit of background on this film. It's, it's basically based on music by George Gershwin, his sweet, an American in Paris, and they've brilliantly sort of put all these songs together in this uh, lovely little story. Um, so it's a film set in Paris about an American man who, um, you know, is living there as a painter. There's a lady trying to help him out with his paintings. He meets her acquaintances. He meets Leslie Caron's character. She's engaged to somebody else. And it's sort of a bit of a, a little bit of a tragic sort of sad love story, but it all works out at the end. Yeah, it's almost like an idyllic uh, reinterpretation of uh, what would have happened with 
Picasso and Gertrude Stein about uh, 40 years earlier oh, okay. because you had uh, Picasso as the uh, up-and-coming uh, painter in Paris and not that uh, he had a romantic relationship with Gertrude Stein. I don't think that was her style, uh, but uh, that kind of a patron relationship. Yeah, it was... I, I, did, I was reading that they wanted to go to Paris to film the film, but it just couldn't be... There were just too many obstacles to overcome. So they did shoot the whole thing, other than maybe some establishing shots at the start of the film, in in Hollywood on various sound stages. I think there was many sound stages used for that last big dance sequence. But I thought they did a really good job with the indoor sets and... They did, and it's because it's this big, flashy musical, you you expect a bit of theatricality, like it's in Technicolor and everything, so you don't mind that it's obviously been a bit, a, a lot of it's on canvas. It was actually funny, though, I was remembering when watching American in Paris, this line from the movie Charade that uh, Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant made in uh, uh, the early 60s, and uh, there was a line where she talked about uh do you remember gene kelly running it down here this under this bridge in american in paris without a care around the world and ironically i think they were actually in front of the real thing but yeah. gene kelly's uh, <laughs> bridge in paris was obviously painted on canvas yes that's true um but you know what having that sort of um you know that indoor set thing happening in these films is not necessarily a bad thing because it's it's it helps you concentrate more on the artistic merit of their dance and of the music. Perhaps if they were filming it outdoors, it might lose a little bit because you're then attracted to the stunning scenery. But whereas if it's sort of replicated, you know, you these films are a little bit out of this world. They're like you know, like film clips of different scenes all put together. And it's really quite stunning the way it is. It Because it uh, came out at like a similar time to Roman Holiday, which was that famous movie Audrey Hepburn made in Rome, it kind of uh, like represents the sort of the polarised compromise you had a choice of making as a filmmaker in the time where you could do something where they, like in Roman Holiday, where they went to Rome, where the city itself was almost like a third character. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it did take a large aspect of the soul of the film, you could say, not to mention there was the budgetary issue that they couldn't do a big technicolor showmanship in a mm. movie like that, so it became black and white, whereas something like American in Paris, it's, it is theatrical, but they go all out with all the color, mm -hmm. all, the, all the dance movements and everything, and you, you win either way. Yeah, and apparently Vincent Minnelli had to go off and now the name of the film completely leaves me, but he had to go off and um, shoot another film and then he came back and then shot the, the dance. Let me see if I can um, get that piece of information, but he had to actually go off and shoot the other film and then come back and shoot the end dance sequence with uh, Leslie Caron and... Uh, Jean Kelly but Leslie Caron herself had a had a wonderful career she got started in that and of course is very well known for another Vincent Minnelli film Gigi which you've seen I haven't seen that I've yeah, only heard about it I, I completely uh, forgotten uh, that the she was played both those roles because like they they look completely different it was after it was after I'd seen the movie uh, American in Paris and I was looking up Leslie's career and 
yeah, just a different hairstyle and everything. I didn't recognize her. Yeah, yeah. No, she was definitely... And she's she's had a very long-lived career herself. I mean, she was born in 1931, so she was quite a bit younger than uh, Jean Kelly. But she actually only stopped acting recently. Like, she was still doing things well into the 2000s. Like, she did an episode of Law and & Order and... Yeah, she was in Chocolat, I think, in a few other films, so early on. So she actually had a very um, long-lived career herself, and I think she's still going strong within herself. So Yeah, so some of the, f the songs in this film, you know, I Got Rhythm, Embraceable You, which is a, a lovely song, um, and Swonderful, which is fantastic. But, of course, the big showpiece one is the American in Palace, the ballet that they do, which is the long piece that Gershwin did, which the... which the um, That cost a fortune to make. Yeah, 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 I can imagine it did. What do you think about the way the, the setting of the film, how it was staged? I think all the indoor sets work very well for it because I think it really lends itself to the singing and to the dancing. The only scene where it's kind of overwhelmingly artificial I think is when uh, Gene Kelly's doing his romancing on, on the bridge over the scene I think it yes, is yeah. um, the indoor scenes like obviously because indoor in buildings are painted indoors anyway mm, so yeah. you don't mind that uh, no. it, it isn't so obvious uh, but like the cafe backdrops worked very well yeah and I just thought the scenes with the children in it were great the colour the vibrancy of it uh, in terms of storyline, I thought, uh, I think I probably preferred this storyline to Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Because Singing in the Rain kind of jumped around a little bit for me, but this one was a little bit, it sort of started somewhere and finished somewhere and it was a bit more linear for me. And I really felt that they did, like Leslie Caron and Jean Kelly, did have a very good chemistry. And even the actor playing her um, partner, he did a very good job as well. Let me just bring up his name here. Um, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it. So Oscar Levant was the friend who was the pianist and Georges Jutari as Henri Barrel. So um, I thought he was great as well. I thought everyone did a really good job in this film. And, of course, we had the cameo of... Hayden Rourke. Yes, who's best known as Dr. Bellows on I Dream of Genie, starring a particular Larry Hagman. Yeah, that's become something of a tradition here. <laughs> um, uh, any any movie we watch, there'll be something to do with Larry Hagman. And in of it. course, you know, he's never going to be in any of the films that we discuss because his acting sort of era, even the films he did make, was sort of the early 60s onwards. So unfortunately, we won't be able to discuss <laughs> but, but we do manage to kind of make him the Forrest Gump of Hollywood. He yeah. just uh, shows up everywhere. <laughs> and especially considering who his mother was, there should be a, a pretty much a tie to him in every sort of, sort of film that we discuss. So um, I really enjoyed this film. I was having a few technical difficulties watching this film, so I was actually happy when I got the thing playing and, uh, and then it worked quite well. So uh, definitely a thumbs up for me and I think for Matt, you'd... Oh, I love it. I would, um, if I were directing such a production now, the I'd be hesitant with the ballet scene at the end because a lot of people just uh, don't have the mindset for following a narrative that, in that kind of uh, purely physical form. Uh, and But I think it's one of the examples of where it's used that I, I think it's done quite effectively. The one in Oklahoma, I, I thought was a little... Uh, uh, 
a little too far. I think it, I feel like it, I would have liked to have said to the, to the director, if you want to direct a ballet, direct a ballet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I sort of, I think it was really just there to showcase Jean and, and Leslie's talent as trained dancers and just give that big theatrical flourish to the end of the film. Do you think it added to the plot? Because it's kind of like there, not much detail really happens after the dance sequence. They, they basically end up uh, with the yeah. couple embracing. And I suppose because, you know, he wasn't a dancer in the film. Like if he was maybe staying in Paris as a dancer and they had danced together in something, then that's his ideal world of their dance continuing sort of thing. But because he was playing an artist, I was like, oh, I guess he dances really well too. Because <laughs> he's imagining himself, you know, in this big dance with her. So... I was, I sort of maybe from more of a storyline perspective, um, I'm not sure it worked in the storyline, but just more of the visual staging musical and he, you know, just because it's Gene Kelly dancing. Well, at the end of the day, musicals, operas, all those sorts of productions, they're more about showmanship and giving a thrilling ride than um, driving a story along. That's what plays are for. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So if we jump into Singing in the Rain, which is a 1952 American musical, uh, billed as a romantic comedy, it was directed, both directed, choreographed and starring Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan as well. Uh, starring the fantastic Debbie Reynolds and one of my favourites, Donald O'Connor. And we also had Sid Charisse in this film as well. So basically, in a nutshell, it's uh, sort of uh, set in Hollywood in the 1920s with three stars, uh, the three stars of this film portraying performers caught up in the transition from silent films to the dreaded talkies and with plenty of dancing theatrics, um, thrills and spills and singing and music and lots of gaiety along the way. It's sort of the opposite take of Sunset Boulevard. That's all yeah. about the, the sadness of the, the coming of sound pictures. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Singing in the Rain, it, it celebrates it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is often, Singing in the Rain is touted. It would probably be... Uh, definitely in the top sort of 20 or 30 films ever made. It's one of the ones that is constantly uh, referred to as one of the best films, especially one of the best musical films. Although a lot of people say Gigi is a very outstanding musical film. Look, I think that's a brilliant movie too. I mean, it is a little awkward when you have to explain to a newcomer the Thank Heaven for Little Girls song. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I remember um, seeing that movie when I was a kid and being innocent uh, uh, enough at that age to not quite understand how some may interpret the lyrics. Yes. Uh, uh, but it was a more innocent time, people. Definitely. So, um, well, we had two outstanding dancers in this film who were working with Jean, which is uh, Debbie and Donald, who were outstanding and and in their own right and very accomplished singers as well. Although apparently um, Debbie and Jean um, didn't necessarily get on that well during production. And this was, we were discussing this before um, the podcast, you were talking about Jean's temperament. Well, it's he wasn't um, the difficult person like Rex Harrison where he just uh, thought he was God's gift. It was more like... <laughs> He was a, a very, uh, a, a very high level perfectionist, and apparently Debbie Reynolds, her background was more in gymnastics than dancing, which meant that she had more than the athletic ability. But unlike 
Fred Astaire, who had the the patience uh, to uh, teach Ginger Rogers for the craft, so they developed mm. a great relationship. Um, that wasn't the case with him. They did, as far as I know, one picture, and uh, even Gene Kelly himself later admitted, uh, in retrospect, I kind of don't understand how Debbie uh, ever even spoke to me again, uh, <laughs> because he was just very demanding. Oh, okay, yeah, it's 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 sort of... Oh, Rita Moreno was in this film as well. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I think for this, this film, for me, I probably, because I do like Donald O'Connor... I preferred it in some ways. I think I... I love the make him laugh, so... Yeah. <laughs> and good morning, good morning. Actually, I was watching this YouTube video with these two women who, who, who film about their family, and they would always sing that song. I'm like, where do I know that song? I'd always start off their videos with that song, and I was like, well, they were just singing it to each other as a I laugh. I think even a Seinfeld episode referenced that at one point. Yeah, so. and I was like, oh, my gosh, hang on. Where do I know that song from? So um, Arthur Freed, again, the head of the Freed unit at MGM, was responsible for all of their glossy and glamorous musicals. So um, he basically conceived the idea of a movie based on a back catalogue of songs written by himself and Nashio Herb Brown. So this is sort of a bit like... Uh, like the Queen musical where they've just gotten all these songs together and somehow moulded them into a storyline. Whereas I thought An American in Paris worked the songs a little bit better into the forward motion of the storyline. Whereas this one is so like, oh, we'll put that one there, we'll put that one there. Not that it didn't work. I just thought this film jumped around a little bit more. Um, well, they... There seems to be an ongoing tradition for Gershwin. There was even a musical that was uh, written, like I think, only in the last twenty years, called "Crazy for You," and that I saw an amateur production of, and that uh, recycled a lot of his uh, songs, uh, but for a new storyline, set in a mining town. Well, interestingly enough, uh, I'm just reading through sort of how this film was made. Apparently, Howard Kill was originally before Gene and Donald were attached to it. Howard Kill was originally mentioned as a possible lead, but they were going to go with him being a star of Western films who makes a comeback as a singing cowboy. But they kept um, gravitating to a story about the romantic hero with the vaudeville background, which, of course, is what their characters ended up being. Yeah. Um, so he couldn't... The reason that they were going, perhaps thinking of someone else, is because he was so heavily involved with doing An American in Paris at the time when they were conceiving Singing in the Rain because they were only made sort of a year apart. Uh, and uh, and then when that sort of wrapped up, he managed to 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 get on and, and, and go into Singing in the Rain. So Well, those movies are like uh, Monet's Water Lilies. They just all work together. Yeah, they they, def they definitely do. And I was reading here an early draft of the script said that Singing the Rain was supposed to be sung by Reynolds, O'Connor and Kelly emerging from the restaurant after the flop of their uh, of the of the thing that they were were doing the movie that they made to celebrate the idea of changing the film into the musical. Oh, that well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I guess, you know, it's interesting when you read all these little sidebars about, oh, they were going to do this, they were going to do that. But really, I think the film worked out as well as it, it could have worked. I mean, that one with him doing it on his own, doing Singing in the Rain on his own, just is so iconic. I, I think we the world would be uh, a lot the worse if it, anything had uh, impacted the movie uh, other than as it came out. 
Yeah, that's it. Well, here we go. This is further to your story. Debbie Reynolds was not a dancer when she made Singing in the Rain. Her background was as a gymnast, and Kelly apparently insulted her for lack of dance experience. So, ah. Oh. I think he was uh, having a background as a, running a dance school. He was uh, often quite impatient with female leads because he had a lot of ex- uh, experience where he'd be teaching um, girls who'd be uh, doing this during school, but sort of once they eat, reach late adolescence and they started getting married and having their own homes and stuff, mm. they often um, dropped out at high rates. And I think they gave him a rather unfair um, uh, un- unfair attitude uh, with a lot of his uh, female co-workers. Yeah, I mean... Um, that being that a... they couldn't commit in the same obsessive level as he did. Yeah, that's right. And I guess for women, yeah, it is sort of hard to balance that... Um you know, whole thing with being a mother and, and still trying to keep your career going. Uh, and I was reading here that the after shooting the good morning routine, which had taken from 8am till 11pm to shoot, Reynolds' feet were bleeding. So well, Donald O'Connor was apparently in hospital for a week after doing the Make Him Laugh. Number. Oh, really? Yeah. My gosh, when he flipped off that wall, I was like, wow. Uh, I know Donald O'Connor was, you know, a master of the sort of pratfalls and all that sort of stuff, but wow. Yeah. There was a Fred, Astaire, a Fred Astaire scene like that, I remember, but at least they made the room turn around him instead. Yeah, that's true. Although, here we go. Donald O'Connor had to stay in bed in the hospital for several days after filming Make Him Laugh due to his smoking up to four packets of cigarettes. So he must have just burnt his lungs out or something. Must, must have. It shocks me even now, apparently, it's quite common for dancers to be smoking. And, like, don't you want the lung capacity, people? Yeah, I, well... You're who, essentially athletes. Yeah, exactly, because um, uh, Patrick Swayze was a chain smoker. And I thought, how can you be a chain smoker? You're a trained dancer. But it's unbelievable. And then you, you know, see people who are, like, chain smokers and they're singers. I don't know how... <laughs> uh, it's an unfortunate thing in a lot of uh, professions, like um, chefs and the like, where the social scene is tied to smoking. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting sort of thing. But these films really, they they're just such a special time in in Hollywood in the genre. And you know, we will explore some of the other big musical films because these fifties musicals really had their own style. They had their own flair. Of course, we had you know Ginger, we had Fred Astaire, we had Donald, we had Jean. We had Leslie, we had Debbie, we had all these fantastic people. And, you know, I was just thinking today, I think you would go to Hollywood today and really struggle to find any performers. You know, they were all sort of triple threats or they learnt to be triple threats. I think you'd have a really hard time finding anyone in Hollywood today that could even do two of those disciplines well. Well, the fact that you had these talents work together so well at this particular time is an indication of the how much success they, they could bring at that uh, unique point. But a lot of studios in the decade or two afterwards, um, because there were a number of um, producers and studio heads who thought uh, that the key to money success was um, doing big musicals. And that like was part of the production um, clash that uh, Paramount, I, I believe, had in the... 60s and 70s when they were trying to work with the likes of Hitchcock and Wells because they were thinking that they had to be doing big musicals to succeed. Mm. And so you had productions like Hello, Dolly, and also epic uh, ones like Cleopatra where they thought, okay, you have these these big colourful works and you just have to throw money at it and it 
it's the recipe for success. No, it doesn't work like that. Throwing money doesn't just guarantee success. No, it do- it, it, it doesn't. Um, you know, some of those big showcase pictures, I mean, I rather enjoyed like Spartacus and, and Ben-Hur, but uh, yeah, as, as sort of time marched on, I mean, I can't think of really other than Hello, Dolly and... What what big? I mean, I guess some of Andrew Lloyd Webber's films got made, like Jesus Christ Superstar, was made in the seventies into you know a musical adaptation, and there's a few a few other ones, but there's nothing that really stands out like the ones that they made in the fifties. Well, it's inter- interesting. This interview I saw with Orson Welles once, where he talked about how he didn't believe uh, there could be a great movie star at that point in time, which was in the eighties or the seventies, when he did the interview because. Uh, to be a great actor was not the greatest thing to be at the time. It was to be a pop singer. And so yeah. I get at every point of history, there's a type of art form where to be the peak of that uh, is to be at the peak of uh, humanity, whether it be mm. an opera singer or a musical star. And uh, so sometimes it just doesn't match in a particular era. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. it's. I mean, they just don't make those sort of films anymore. And... Even when they do, uh, a lot of the singing and stuff is overdubbed and they've got a dance double that does the hard dancing for them and, yeah. So. I guess it's kind of like you have to follow Dr. Seuss, don't be sad because it's over, be happy because it happened. Or yeah, like that. that's right. <laughs> but it was actually, uh, I'd always seen lots of parts of Singing in the Rain and I'd never seen an American. Obviously, I was familiar with some of Gershwin's songs from the film. Very familiar with Jean. I actually, the last, I didn't realise, Matt and I were sort of going through, as I mentioned before, we were going through uh, just reading about Jean's career. And uh, I didn't realise that the infamous Xanadu was like the last lead role in a film in 1980 that Jean uh, did. And I actually have a big soft spot for Xanadu I thought he was great in the film I thought the music I mean the music was so 80s it was electric light orchestra it was Cliff Richard it was you know uh, some of the people that had been involved with Greece wrote some of the songs and uh, or producing some of the songs for Greece had been involved with it but I actually thought you know for what it was I mean you know people oh my god Gene Kelly's on roller skates but it's like well that was just another aspect of that he was willing to get up and be choreographed on roller skates I thought he did a really good job for someone at his age group and he did uh, like uh, uh, some lovely dance sequences he did one with Olivia Newton-John so I know that film gets a lot of hate and everything because it is really trashy but it's just fun trashy and he was really good in that film he gave it a bit of gravitas and you know it just seeing him in that film and dancing and everything just was a throwback to the 1950s so um I don't think he needed to be ashamed about that film and as he sort of quoted himself he said it was a great idea it just didn't quite come off um I think some of the psychedelic sort of um sound effects and stuff (laughs) But Olivia Newton's song, uh, Olivia Newton-John is a great singer and some of the songs were, and some of the songs were fantastic. I still regularly listen to the soundtrack. So I think he, he kind of ended off his career at least doing a fun, a fun project. And he definitely had an amazing, um, just breadth of work, you know, and he really did it all. He came up the hard way, went through stage, he did the theatrical stuff and then was offered the contract and went over to Hollywood. So it was it was really nice to visit these works of Jean's. And uh, a few years after that, what I guess would have been one of his uh, last uh, 
appearances in public, uh, which I think was a nice moment, was when uh, the three tenors did one of their huge concerts that they did in the 90s. It was in Los Angeles, I think, and mm. a lot of men like Sinatra and Kelly were in the audience, and they uh, uh, did uh, Singing in the Rain. Now, personally, I think the three tenors' interpretation of Singing in the Rain was a bit unusual. Yes, uh, yes, but yes. The, uh, but the... Uh, Celebrational sentiment uh, with Kelly in the audience yeah. was, I think, a very nice way to finish off his yeah, life. Yeah, that would that would have been a very special night to have been there. Yeah, it's lovely when they do those sort of. Um, that, they did waltzing Matilda here for us, didn't they? When they... <laughs> the horror. I uh, know. That was as scary as John Howard's eyebrows in the oh audience. Oh my god! But it's still I, they always did a good job in honouring the places that they were visiting. So you have to say that about the three tenors. But uh, yeah, it would have been an amazing experience for Jean to be there while they were seeing that to him so we're going to finish off I guess I would give both of the films a thumbs up they're definitely part of the repertoire of when movies were good these are the sorts of films classic films that you you really need to see just for the visuals and the music alone and if you can see it on a big screen too it deserves uh, that kind of yeah. ex experience or at least a surround sound system at the house um <laughs> True. Uh, much better than having to watch it on the iPad with headphones. I had no choice. Everybody's home at COVID. I, yeah. I never had the house to myself anymore. <laughs> I definitely had my sound bar flared up for both of them, which was fun. So please join us for the next edition of When Movies Were Good when we take a visit with the lovely Marilyn Monroe. For a, it's, it's time that we did a double with Marilyn. We are going to do Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and The Seven Year Itch. Yes, that's the movie with the dress. That's right, the dress and, uh, and uh, you know, everything about Marilyn is iconic. So join us again in a couple of weeks when we visit with Marilyn Monroe for her two of her famous movies. And in the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and good night.